0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you will, turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Just a moment, we're going to read from there. Uh, I would like to invite you back. uh, Make sure you come next week. We're going to unpack the warning passages of the book of Hebrews, and there are some rather startling ones in the book. Uh, Some passages that warn us not to fall away, not to uh, become apostate, not to ignore what we have said we believed about Jesus and what happens if we do. And so uh, the question there is really that that many have asked coming through the book of Hebrews is can one lose their salvation? And we're going to try to explore what the writer is dealing with in those texts from the book of Hebrews. So I would encourage you to come back next week as we look at the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. We're going to look at eternal life or eternal salvation. Above the three arches of the entryways into the Cathedral of Milan, and there are three of them, there's one arch, uh, and above that arch is is a picture of a rose. And under that picture, it says, all that which pleases is but for a moment. A second arch that enters into the cathedral has a cross above it. And underneath the cross is written these words, all that which troubles is but for a moment. But under the primary archway, the main entrance to the cathedral, is written this on top of that archway is, that only is important, which is eternal. There's nothing that matters more than eternity. When I was a Bible college student, I went to Fruitland Baptist Bible College. One of the earliest classes that we took was evangelism. I sat down in that class, and our professor happened to be Dr. Greg Mathis, who I would go on to serve under his ministry at Mud Creek Baptist for about 15 years. Um, He taught us using a training tool called Evangelism Explosion. and We had to memorize passages of Scripture and a presentation in order to share the gospel. And that... Training tool begins with two diagnostic questions. Let me ask those of you, and you just consider those with me for this morning. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? Let me ask a second one. Suppose you were to die today, this moment. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Those are tremendously important questions. There's nothing that we could think about that's better than eternity, but the reality is so many of us are so distracted by so many of the things going on. We're so busy, we're so frustrated, or we're so anxious, or we're so tied to our cell phones and our, or the data that we look at and the stories we read and the images we click and like and the news articles that we feel like we've got to stay in touch with or the busyness we've got with work or, or, if you're a parent, the busyness at home. And it is so easy for us to be caught up in the present day, everything that we've got to do that we don't often consider eternity. So what I'm going to ask you to do is for the next 25 minutes or so, stop thinking about everything else. Stop being distracted and let's look at what the Bible tells us about the source of eternal salvation. How in the world do we know that we can enter into heaven and have eternal life? Our our text focuses on Jesus as priest, but in verse 9 it says he is the source of eternal salvation. The reason he is what he is, our priest, is because he wants to offer us a way into heaven. We're going to look at the qualities of the type of person we need in order for us to experience eternal salvation. Read with me Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. What do we need in order to make sure that we have eternal salvation? The first type of person we need or the first quality of a person that we need is we need someone like us. text tells us we need someone like us in order to be assured of eternal salvation. The, The passage begins with a description of the priesthood of the Old Testament. The Old Testament priests had to meet certain qualifications. One qualification they had to be from among men... Short in there, they couldn't be a deity, they couldn't be an angel, they couldn't be an animal. The priests of the Old Testament had to be a person because the priest in the Old Testament represented God's people to God. They had to be able to represent God's people, so they had to be a person. They also had to be someone that was appointed. In other words, they couldn't just decide one day, I'm going to be a priest. That's what I'm going to do, I'm going to be a priest. No, they had to be appointed. And in the Old Testament, the fashion of appointment came through... Aaron's line, Moses' brother Aaron, God selected Aaron to be the priest, his lineage became the priest, and the Levites of which the, tri- of the tribe that Moses and Aaron were a part of, they were the ones that, uh, that were responsible for the ministry and the work of the temple and the tabernacle. Tabernacle first and then the temple. Had to be appointed. Uh, in fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll remember the story of King Saul who decided one day he was going to be a priest. He was going to offer a sacrifice. And God punished him severely, took the kingdom away from Saul in part because he decided he was going to act like a priest. So a priest has to be a person, has to be appointed by, uh, appointed by God. So a man appointed by God. And then the priest also has to offer sacrifices. That's the role of the priest. Priest needed to offer sacrifices. So that priest, when he would offer sacrifices, he would take that animal, take that sheep or that goat or that ox or, or that turtle dove, and he would slaughter it, spill its blood out. He would offer it as a sacrifice in the altar and share that meat with the family or the person that brought that meat for sacrifice. And then he would partake of some of that meat as well. And so that priest's responsibility was to be representative. And, and what happens in the text is the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the priesthood of the Old Testament is a picture of exactly what Jesus would do in the New Testament. He is from among men. Jesus came to be like us so he could serve as our priest. He, he didn't decide he was going to be a priest one day. Jesus didn't wake up one day and say, Hey, I'm going to be a priest. No, God appointed him to that role of being a priest. And certainly, Jesus offered a sacrifice. And there's another image here, there's a word here that kind of highlights the role, the intentional role that a priest was supposed to uh, partake of or lead in in his ministry. It said he was able to deal gently or the priest should be able to deal gently with the people that would come his way. The, The priests were supposed to be someone who wouldn't be extreme in their response and reaction to those who were offering sacrifices. Dealing gently means not being an extremist, not being someone who's extremely judgmental or not being someone who's apathetic. And you can imagine why that would be important, right? Because someone, so-and-so, comes and brings a lamb to the, to the priest to offer sacrifice, and he says, hey, here's what I've done this week, and it is, it is a whopper of sin. I mean, it's just bad upon bad upon bad. You can imagine what that priest would do if, if he reacted overtly. To that said, so, oh my goodness, it doesn't matter whether you bring ten lambs; you can't be forgiven for that sin. That's too big, and, and so it would be a false representation of God. The priest also couldn't be apathetic, couldn't be careless. He couldn't say, "Ah, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how many sacrifices you bring. It's just not any good." The priest was to be able to do, supposed to be able to deal to deal gently. To, to respond to people as they were sinners and in weakness and needed help that was their role. Now why this is important contextually is at this point in the in the in the time of the Jewish people, the high priests were supposed to come from the lineage of Aaron and they were supposed to be appointed directly by God through that lineage. but at this point in Christian history, the first century like the time when Jesus was walking and talking on earth, the priests were not appointed, by lineage, they were appointed by the political governance of the land. Herod or Pilate appointed the high priest. It was a political position. It wasn't in a position about serving the people. It was a position about being served and being in control and having power. And so the writer here is making a distinction. He's saying this is what the priests were supposed to do in the Old Testament. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to be like us. Not Because he's weak, but he came to take on our weaknesses and deal gently with us because that's what we need. We don't need a Jesus who's going to look at you in your sinfulness and say, Hey, your sin is bigger than my cross. We don't need a Jesus who looks at us and says, Your sin doesn't matter. Just kind of ignore it. No, we need a Jesus who will deal gently with us. A Jesus who says, Yes, your sin needs to be dealt with. And I've provided the means for it to be dealt with by my death on the cross. John Calvin put it this way in describing why Jesus had to come and be like us. He said, It was necessary for Christ to become a real man, for as we are very far from God, we stand in a manner before Him in the person of our priest, which could not be were He not from one of us. Hence, that the Son of God has a nature in common with us does not diminish His dignity, but it commends it the more... For he is fitted to reconcile us to God because he is a man. Jesus had to come and be like us in order to represent us before God. And because he knows your weaknesses and your sorrows and your difficulties and your challenges, he can represent us perfectly. You realize Jesus knows everything? He knows everything about you, everything you've done, everything you have ever, ever will do, everything you might say, everything you think and don't say. He knows it all. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, omniscience knows everything. Jesus came to be like us because perfect sympathy feels everything. We need someone like us in order to have eternal salvation because we need someone to be able to represent us to God. We need someone... Who knows what it's like to be tempted. We need someone who knows what it's like to feel pain and sorrow and sadness and suffering. We need someone to deal gently with us. And that someone is Jesus who came to be like us. But if all we needed were someone who were like us, then what would we do? We'd find the best one of us. The best person that ever lived. And we, we would put them forward to God and say, God, will you take this person as our representative? Problem is, the best one of us is not good enough. We don't just need someone like us to provide a means for eternal salvation. We need someone greater than us in order for us to experience eternal salvation. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes on to say, You are a priest forever, After the order of Melchizedek. The writer here quotes again. The second phrase is quoted from Psalm 110 verse 4. The first phrase is quoted from Psalm 2 verse 7. And those are messianic psalms. They're kingship psalms, really. They're psalms that predict that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the king of the Jewish people. He's going to be the one that everyone is to follow. And so those psalms are intended to point to someone who's going to reign and rule, someone who's going to be in charge, someone who who we can count on and we can depend on. They're beautiful pictures and affirmations of what God intends to do, or spoke through the prophet, spoke through David in the Psalms what he intends to do in the future and of course the writer here says they're fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus is the one who is greater, he is greater so he is able to bring us into eternal salvation. He's greater because he is a king. That phrase, look at this, you're my son, today I have begotten you. It's a beautiful phrase. It's an affirmation that God says about Jesus, you are my son. And one of the key themes of the book of Hebrews is the sonship of Jesus. In relationship to the Father, Jesus is a son. Jesus is the son, the primary son. And and then he says, today I've begotten you. And one of the things I want you to understand, that doesn't mean that Jesus began when he was born. Okay? Uh, the, The Trinity has always been. God has always existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But... He was begotten in human flesh, meaning that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has always been, but he became human flesh when he was conceived. He became human flesh in birth when he came into the world. He is begotten of God so that he could be greater than us. And he is greater than us because he existed before he began, physically began, as a human person. It's a glorious affirmation of the greatness and majesty of Jesus as king and as Lord. Goes on in Psalm 110 to acknowledge that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to study Melchizedek more deeply, more intricately in the next several chapters of the book of Hebrews. But Melchizedek was a king. He was the king of Salem, which was the name before Jerusalem was given its name. So he was the king of Jerusalem. King of Salem, but he was also a priest. If you go back to Genesis chapter 14, you'll discover that Abraham, after he had rescued Lot from some armies, he came back and he offered a tithe to Melchizedek, who is described in the Old Testament, Genesis 14, as a priest to the Most High God. Melchizedek was a priest king. He was a representative of God. And while he didn't have the lineage of Abraham, he was still a priest of the Most High God. And so what what the text is telling us, what the writer is saying, is that Jesus is a king. He's a king after Melchizedek. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who is absolutely, gloriously affirmed and in charge. He's greater than us, and because he's greater than us, he can offer us eternal salvation. But you look around and you see, man, it doesn't look very much like someone who is good and godly and holy and righteous is in charge. Congress can't get along, there's chaos in the world, there's war, there's pandemic, there's sin, there's wickedness, there's depravity, there's anger, there's frustration. And we're just talking about the out there, not even taking a snapshot of what's going on in your home or your heart or your life. Does it look like Jesus is in charge? I just want to remind you, he is. Let me tell you how I know he is. Because he is, well, because you're here. What do I mean by that? Well, the events of the crucifixion and resurrection took place 2,000 years ago in a place called Jerusalem halfway across the world. And yet we're here today gathered as a group of believers completely disconnected historically from the lineage of the people of Israel that God sent Jesus through. We're here praising King Jesus When Jesus came on planet earth, he came and the Bible says that his first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom, to begin his kingdom. And his kingdom began when he started preaching and when he started healing and doing the ministry of a priest and doing the preaching of a prophet. That's when his ministry began. And that's when his kingship began. It was inaugurated at his first advent. You know how I know it's continuing to be in place? Because the spread of the gospel is an affirmation of the kingship of Jesus. When you and I preach and teach the gospel, when we witness to our children and grandchildren, when we tell someone who's never heard the gospel about Jesus and they come to faith in Christ, that is an affirmation of Jesus' kingship and rule. We call that the already not yet principle in terms of interpreting Scripture. Already Jesus is ruling. He is ruling in and through the power and spread of the gospel. He is ruling in and through his people, the church, when his church preaches and teaches the gospel and spreads the good news. He is ruling and he is in charge. The not yet part is this. He hasn't come to physically put his feet on planet earth and rule over the kings and the princes and the leaders of the world. But he is one day. You know how I know he is one day? Because I can see his rule in and through the hearts and lives of followers of Jesus who have believed the gospel and who are preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is greater than us. He is king. Apologist, thinker, and writer Abraham Kuyper, who served as the president of the Free University of the Netherlands, in his inauguration at that time, role as president of the of the free university of the netherlands said this about jesus he said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine folks jesus is in charge We may worry about it and fret about it because it doesn't appear in this scenario and area of life. But I promise you, the same Jesus who died on the cross and his gospel changes the hearts and lives of people. He is reigning right now. And we need Jesus to be greater. Why do we need Jesus to be greater? Because our sins are terribly great. Come you sinners, weak and wounded, lost and ruined by the fall. Isn't that us? I mean, how far are our sins? How far do our sins keep us from a holy and righteous God? And man, they keep us far from God. You can't hope to pay your own sin debt. You can't hope to confess enough or give enough or do enough for God to wipe those sins away. We don't need just someone like us to bring us eternal salvation. We need someone greater than us to bring us eternal salvation. And the one who is greater than us is both priest and king. And he is great over all. And there's coming a day when every person on planet Earth is going to bow their knee before King Jesus and say, Lord of lords and king of kings and surrender to him completely. We need someone greater than us to make salvation possible. Not just someone greater, we also need someone better than us in order to make salvation possible. Notice what it says in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reference. The writer is referencing back Jesus' prayer life. Christian, just, just note this. If Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the perfect son of God, needed to get up early and pray or stay up all night and pray or make special time to talk with God, then how much more do we need to make time to surrender to God through prayer? Prayer should be a glorious privilege and application of the Christian experience. Specifically, the writer here is referencing Jesus' time in Gethsemane. There in Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus agonized in prayer. He bowed his knee before the Father and he prayed in such ways that he sweat drops of blood. text tells us here it wasn't just a quiet prayer. It wasn't just an internal prayer. It was a prayer with loud cries and utterances and weeping and tears. What was he praying? We read in Matthew and he prayed this. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Was Jesus praying that God would take away the cross from him? Maybe, in in some sense, as a human, knowing that he was going to be separate from God in his full flesh, knowing what he was going to have to suffer, maybe he was praying something like that. Was he praying that God would keep him from death? Because if he was praying that, then that's not what the text tells us here. Why does it not tell us that? Because Jesus went through death. And the text tells us Jesus was heard out of his reverence. In other words, God heard the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane and God answered the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane and yet the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane led Jesus Jesus to the cross. So what was Jesus praying for? Was he praying to be kept from death? I think he was praying to be rescued from death. Brought out of death. Watch this. I think he was praying that he would be resurrected. And I think... God gloriously affirmed the reverence and the holiness of Jesus and affirmed that through the resurrection. I want you to think about the big prayers you've prayed over the years. God, give me a million dollars. I need a million dollars. I, 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 I need this. God, can you give me a pony? I just want a pony. I just want I just, Maybe that's a Christmas wish list and not something that's been on your prayer list. God, will you fix my child? For some of you wives. God, will you fix my husband? Or, or, or some, of you, some of you have prayed, God, will you take away cancer? Lord, will you, will you help me? Will you, will you bring me out of this? Will you, will you deal with this difficulty in my life? We've prayed some really big prayers. And over the years, some Christians have actually prayed that God would raise someone from the dead. Most of us don't pray that prayer. Because we know that dead people don't rise from the grave. It just doesn't happen. Yet Jesus prayed that God would rescue him out of death. Jesus died. Jesus went to the cross. And guess what? Jesus rose from the dead three days later, affirming gloriously that he is better than us. Listen, if God hears that prayer, and of course that was God's plan to raise Jesus from the dead, and he's never died again and never will die again, but that is an affirmation that Jesus is so much better than we are. He prayed something so massive and earth-shattering and world-changing that God affirmed. God affirmed, and it means that you and I can experience salvation. Not only that, look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does does this mean? It means that Jesus, he was not a son that was disobedient and needed to learn to obey. It means that he is a son in the sense God brought him in the world, sent him into the world, but got him in the world so that we could experience life and salvation. But as a son, he obeyed. He, he, he did exactly what his father said to do. That is, tr- that is wonderfully glorious. He never disobeyed God. He never sinned when he was tempted. He, he never broke God's law. He learned obedience. Notice how he learned obedience. He learned obedience through suffering. That should be encouraging for at least two specific reasons. First reason it should be encouraging is this. What do we do when we suffer? tend to complain a little bit, you know, get frustrated, share our, share our frustrations with someone else, you know, you're hurting today, I've been doing a little work at my house and, and my back's been a little tighter than it used to be and a little more sore than it used to be and my wife and children have heard about it, heard, they've heard, my, my back's hurt, my back doesn't feel great, that's what we do, we share our sufferings. Sometimes we do that in even deeper ways. When we're resentful, we show it in our actions and our attitudes. Sometimes when somebody's treated us wrong at work or in our home, we complain about, can you believe that so-and-so would say such-and-such about me? Can you believe what would ha- that this happened, that they did that, and we complain and we gripe and we fr- get frustrated at our sufferings? Why would this take place to me? Jesus learned obedience in suffering. He never did any of that. If anybody had any reason to complain about the way he was treated, Jesus did. Yet he didn't. He learned obedience through suffering. That should encourage us. It should tell us that he's better than us. I mean, obviously, he's better than us. Thank goodness he's better than us. Thank goodness he didn't complain when he suffered. Thank goodness he didn't look at the Father and say, I don't want to go through the pain of the cross. And I'm just not going to do it because we wouldn't be here today having the opportunity to experience redemption and life. A second reason that Jesus' learning to obey through suffering should encourage us is notice that's where he meets us. He didn't learn obedience through blessings. He didn't learn obedience through good times. The Bible says he learned obedience through what? Suffering. Some of you are going through some things that I can't possibly understand. I love you. I care about you as, as the church that God's called me to be a pastor and an elder here and, and serve and lead. I love you. And I'm heartbroken at some of the things, some of the stories you've told me, and some of the things you're going through. But some of what you're going through is beyond my understanding and my ability to help you with, other than prayers and some sympathy. But, folks, that's where Jesus chose to meet us. Not at our best, not at our brightest. Not at our most successful, Jesus chose to meet us, learn obedience in our suffering. That should dramatically encourage us. Folks, Jesus is better than us. Verse 9, and being made perfect, that doesn't mean he was imperfect and he needed to be made perfect. It simply means that he completed God's purposes. He fulfilled the law to its perfection. He experienced suffering to its perfection. He took on himself the sin of the world. And when all of that was complete, it's a statement of affirmation that he completed exactly what God intended for him to do on the cross. It's not that he was imperfect and became perfect. He's always been perfect and right before God. But he completed the work that was in front of him. And then it says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is like us that's why he can represent us jesus is greater than us that's why he can put away all of our sins and bring us to salvation jesus is better than us that's why he can be our savior because he's perfect and he is pure and right but what is the means by which we receive the salvation jesus offers says to all who would obey him now i don't want you to get lost in that phrase and think oh my goodness now we've got to go back and obey the law that's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. That phrase is used in other places in Scripture to acknowledge that entering eternal life is obeying the plan that God had for us, meaning that we need to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, believe only in Him for salvation. That's obedience to the gospel. Paul uses the exact same language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he writes this. He says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. To enter into eternal life, to have eternal salvation, we have to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We have to answer the door that God is inviting us to open by trusting in Jesus. A phrase is also used in, in that word, obey, carries with it the idea of opening a door. In Acts chapter 12 Peter was in prison, and the church prayed for him, and he was rescued, and he went to the house of John Mark, and he knocked on the door. And the text tells us in verse 13, a servant girl came and answered the door. Same word for obey, the gospel that's used there. He, she answered the door. The picture is simply this. Obeying the gospel is doing exactly what God says about us. We're sinners in need of repentance and salvation, and we need to trust in Jesus alone to experience that gift of eternal life experiencing eternal life experiencing eternal salvation comes when we trust in Jesus alone let me encourage you with three very specific applications as we close they're not in your notes you can write them down if you like to two for Christians and one for those who are not Christians yet Christian here's the first one Christian rejoice we should rejoice you know why we should rejoice Because we are part of God's inheritance gift to Christ. In Psalm 2, verse 8, the very next line, after the line that was quoted in the text, it says, ask of me and I'll give the nations to you as an inheritance. That's not for us. God's not inviting us to ask for the nations as an inheritance. He's inviting His Son the Messiah, the king, the priest, the king-priest, the great and glorious representative of all human, humanity. He's inviting Jesus to ask that God will give him the nations as an inheritance. I just want to tell you, that's exactly what God has done. And you and I are a part of that. We're 2,000 years removed and thousands of miles, half a world away, removed from the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. And yet we are here today and Christians are in China today and in the Ukraine today and in Russia and in South America and all over the world. There are people who are worshiping Christ who rules and who reigns. And every single one of us, the Bible calls us an inheritance gift to Jesus from God the Father. Christian, remember that. That gives us cause to rejoice. Reminds us that we've got a good news to share with others. Reminds us why we're here. We're here to praise Christ, as as the praise team sang, to magnify Christ. Let me give you a second application, Christian. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. In the Old Testament, the priests had to wear specific garments. The high priest in particular, he had to wear multicolored robes. So he had blues and he had yellows and he had whites on. Uh, Down at the bottom of his robe, he had tassels and he had bells and there were pomegranates sewn into his uh, robes and his clothing. He had a turban on his head. I mean, if you were the high priest, everybody knew that you were the high priest because your garments set you apart. One of the most important pieces of the high priestly garment was... Uh, something that was put on the shoulder, and and they had a, a kind of a flap where stones were put into a piece of cloth on the shoulder. And in each one of those stones was engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. So when the high priest would go about doing his duties regularly, and specifically on that day of atonement, he would be walking around with the names of the people of Israel on the shoulders. In other words, he would be representing... The people before God. In the New Testament, Old Testament, when you see Jesus dressed as a priest, like you do in Revelation 1, like you do in Revelation 5, those images, you don't see Jesus with a sash that has stones on it with everybody's name. I will tell you this. Your name, my name, is embedded in the scars that he carries as our sacrifice and priest. Remember who you are. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's forgiven you. He has saved you. He's changed you. You're His. That's why we should act like we're His. Because that's what He did. He bought us with His blood. Sinner, if you're here today and you do not yet know Jesus, or you're not sure you have eternal life, whether you're a child, whether you're 8, 11, teenager, 15, 17, adult, 40, 80, I don't care how old you are, how young you are. If you're here and you do not know for sure that you have eternal salvation, Jesus is giving you the opportunity to believe in him. Trust in him for eternal life. Confess your sins. Ask him to be your savior and your Lord. And Jesus promises that he'll be there for you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find it. Those who knock, it is open to them. Lewis is observing what is gloriously true about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He invites any who would believe to receive in Christ, receive Christ and have eternal life. So I would tell you, eternity is in front of you. You have an opportunity to receive Jesus, to experience eternal salvation and go to heaven and be there forever and forever and forever. Or you can reject it deny what god says you can ignore it say i want to go about living my life my way and god will let you do that but you'll suffer for eternity for it i'm gonna ask you to do something if you would i'm gonna ask everybody in the room to bow your head and close your eyes i don't want anybody else looking around i promise i'm gonna add i'm gonna ask something in a moment and i promise if i ask you i'm not gonna embarrass you i'm not gonna call you out i'm just simply gonna pray for you I'm burned daily and regularly for those who are connected to Wilkesboro Baptist Church who are not sure of their eternal salvation. And I pray for you, and I just want to pray for you today. So here's what I'm going to ask you. If you're in the room and you're not sure that you have the eternal salvation described in Scripture, would you just do me a favor and raise your hand? That's all you got to do. Raise your hand. If you're not sure that you have eternal salvation right now, just raise your hand. Okay. I see your hand. I would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to speak to you about how you can know for sure that Jesus is your Savior. So what I'd like you to do, you can take the tear tab in your worship guide and say, I'd like to know more about following Christ. And just check it and put your name. Hey, can I talk to you? If you want to... You want to come down at the invitation. You're welcome to do that. I'd love nothing more than to tell you, tell you how you can put, follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior and receive eternal life. Christian, here's what I want you to do. In this room and in your relational circles, you know people who have not yet trusted Jesus. You know children, grandchildren, teenagers, neighbors, coworkers. When we give the invitation in a moment, I want you to pray for them. Pray for their salvation, pray for God to open their eyes and soften their hearts that they would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. For those of you that lifted your hands, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to go ahead and stand with me. We're going to sing an invitation hymn in just a second, but let me offer a word of prayer for those of you here and for those of you that are not, those that are not here that need Jesus. Father, you are great and good. You're glorious And Lord God, you sent your son Jesus to be like us so that he could represent us to you. Thank goodness you sent him to be greater than us. He is able to take away our sin. Thank goodness that you sent him to be better than us. He is perfect and right and righteous. Our salvation can only come through Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray today for those that raise their hands that aren't sure of their eternal salvation. Would you let today be the day of their repentance and faith? Would you redeem them? God, for those that we're burdened for, children and teenagers, family members, neighbors, co-workers, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would redeem and rescue them. Open their eyes to see the truth. Open their ears to hear the gospel. Open their hearts, soften their hearts, that they may be saved. And, Lord God, give us as your people boldness and willingness to share the gospel of Christ. Lord God, this day, would you bring sinners salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.